Thank you all very much for uh, coming to this uh, special event um, organized by uh, ELAC, the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, on uh, torture and dignity. Um, so this event really came about because we realized that um, David was in the country for a period of time teaching down in London, and we thought that this was, uh, this was too good an opportunity to miss, uh, having three of the most eminent and distinguished and active uh, writers, uh, theorists, and I suppose, in a way, activists on the issue of, of torture um, in, in recent times uh, in the country at the same time. So we thought we'd seize on this opportunity to bring them all together uh, for this event, which I think is just going to be terrifically interesting and stimulating. So a colleague of mine said to me, um, but don't they all just agree with each other? Um, and, and in a sense, of course, that, that's true. I tend to think that's not a problem, since I tend to think that the elements of the shared position is, is fundamentally the correct one. And I think that over the last few decades, um, the work and the scholarship of these, uh, of these three men has really been a, a bastion of clear thinking and moral decency uh, in, a, uh, in a period of public debate which has often been characterized uh, by neither of those two things. So let me just um, very briefly uh, introduce our three panelists uh, here today. Um, David Luban, to my right, is going to kick us off in the presentation. Uh, David is University Professor uh, of Law and Philosophy at Georgetown University. Um, he has been writing on the issue of uh, torture for well over a decade now, and his collected papers will soon be published by Cambridge University Press under the title, remind me again what you're going for? Torture, Power and Law. Torture, Power and Law. Um, He's also been very, very active in the public policy debate in the United States, including testifying to both houses of Congress on the role of lawyers uh, in U.S. torture activities. On my far left is um, Professor Jeremy Waldron, who is Chichili Professor of Social and Political Theory at All Souls College in Oxford and also University Professor at NYU Law School. Um, he has also published uh, broadly and deeply on issues of torture, and his papers are collected in a rival uh, complementary exactly, uh, series with uh, Oxford University Press, um, Torture, Terror, and Trade-Offs, uh, Philosophy for the White House. And I, I was actually fortunate enough to have um, written assessments for both presses on both books, and I, I can attest that both of them are absolutely superb, <laughs> essential readings for anyone uh, who is interested in these uh, matters. And on my immediate left uh, is Professor Henry Hsu, um, Emeritus uh, of Oxford University, uh, who, as many of you will know, wrote one of um, the seminal early papers on torture, his 1978 paper in Philosophy and Public Affairs, which I know has been an inspiration to many people who work in this field and who has continued to, uh, to write and intervene in, in on this debate uh, to the present time. So we're extremely grateful to have the three of you here. Um, I look forward to a, to a fascinating discussion. So, David, I'll ask you to, to kick us off. Well, thanks. Thanks for the generous introduction and for having me here. Uh, you know, when, a few days ago, when David was fretting over email about the, um, how similar our views were and how we really need a disagreement, I thought that I could start by saying that now I've seen zero dark 30 and I'm pro-torture. Um, but, <laughs> but it wouldn't be true because I haven't seen it and I haven't changed my view. Um, no, it's every human rights 
instrument, every major human rights instrument in the world declares that uh, torture and cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment are violations. And almost all of the world's human rights instruments uh, also explain that uh, the reason that we have human rights is out of concern for human dignity. Now, uh, the, the first seems like an obvious thing to include in a human rights treaty. The second is a philosophical proposition, and it raises puzzles. Um, how do you get specific human rights out of a general concept of human dignity. I mean, some might say that you can't get a rabbit out of a hat without having first put the rabbit into the hat. Um, and there's a more specific puzzle um, about uh, connecting human dignity and torture. And that is that uh, uh, it just seems the, the evil of torture seems too obvious to need fancy explanations through philosophical concepts. It's the imposition of pain. I mean, torturing a dog is wrong also, and we might think that torturing a dog is wrong for most of the same reasons that torturing a human being is wrong, and then where do you get the human dignity? By the way, dogs will continue to appear in my remarks today in a couple of other places as well. So you might think that um, Grounding the prohibition on torture in human dignity is too refined and maybe even downright evasive. Um, and I, I hope to argue that that's not the case. Um, now, human dignity is uh, not a precisely defined ahistorical concept like alkaline salt. Um, and it's not even a historical but uh, definable in ahistorical fuzzy term like tort or obligation, I actually think that human dignity is a concept that largely exists in its historical meanings. Um, and the problem is that there are a lot of them. Um, human dignity, uh, if you look at the Stoic tradition, was identified by Epictetus with the unshakable will, uh, with, by Cicero and Marcus Aurelius with reason. Uh, moving from Stoics to uh, the biblical tradition, its uh, um, human dignity comes from being created in God's image uh, or in having dominion over the rest of nature and therefore being a higher order of being than the rest of nature. Uh, in the Renaissance, uh, Pico della Mirandola in his oration on human dignity says that it's uh, our chameleon nature, our ability to recreate ourselves. Uh, um, Kant locates it in autonomy. It could be located in individual uh, the contemporary philosopher Avishai Margalit locates it in uh, not being humiliated, which is uh, something that I've said in, uh, in various writings uh, over the last few years. Um, there is a cultural feminist uh, understanding of human dignity that focuses not so much on the very masculinist tradition of governance and the kind of senatorial conception of rule, but on the giving of care and the capacity to give care. And uh, now Jeremy is going to be elaborating on conceptions of human dignity, so I'm not going to say more about it uh, right now. Uh, I will say that what I'm going to be focusing on is, uh, is two features that I think any reasonable concept or any reasonable conception of human dignity will have to include. Uh, and uh, those are, uh, just to anticipate a bit, the integrity of the human personality and the equal status of all people. 
Um, now, let me just start the argument by uh, reference to uh, an interesting opinion by the German Supreme Constitutional Court from 1977. The, the German court uh, was considering whether a life sentence without parole is constitutionally permissible, and they concluded that it wasn't. This is for two reasons. I mean, based on two articles of the German Constitution, one which guarantees human dignity and one which guarantees the free development, the right to free development of the personality. And the court linked those and said, if you sentence somebody to life imprisonment without parole, then you are, in essence, declaring that they are beyond the possibility of rehabilitation, beyond the possibility of redeeming themselves, of being welcomed back into human society. And to convey that to a person uh, is to violate their human dignity. So without the, with at least the hope of parole, and of course at a parole hearing, uh, somebody who is not ready to come out of prison back into society can stay in prison, but they're given the opportunity. Uh, so without that hope, then it's no longer possible to form human goals, you might say, because there is no goal. This is uh, endless imprisonment. Um, or motivations. Uh, life would have the characteristic of uh, you know, what Bernard Williams called the tedium of immortality, and the personality would be in danger of uh, breaking up. Now, of course, many prisoners who've gotten life without parole sentences don't break up, but at least that's a, a strong possibility. And uh, it's this idea of having a personality that's able to form goals, goals of its own, uh, to form a motivational set around them that is uh, pretty much the core of what I am thinking of as the integrity of human personality as a first aspect of human dignity. And the second I mentioned is, of course, that of sharing equally high status with all other humans. And uh, you can connect this with practices of imprisonment as well, which oftentimes involve a kind of symbolic degradation of saying that this person um, will be treated harshly in prison uh, precisely because we want to show that they are lower than other people. Uh, the historian James Whitman has argued that that explains many of the United States practices of imprisonment. Okay, uh, now I, I want to put these together. The first, uh, the emphasis on integrity of the personality, you might say, focuses on the individual. The second, on the equality, the equal status of people, is a more relational concept of dignity. And they go together. Uh, if you destroy someone's human personality, then you are reducing her to a lower level. And systematic subordination of somebody is an assault on the personality. So at this point, let's turn to the topic of torture and what its specific evils are. And I'm going to begin with uh, physical torture, although part of my argument is going to be that physical torture and mental torture lie on a continuum with each other and that, uh, that they should not be separated from each other. Now, let's go back to torturing the dog, where we focus on the pain of the dog. Why isn't talking about the pain of torture enough to explain its distinctive evil. I mean, one answer is simply that uh, pain by itself isn't necessarily an evil. Now, here I'd focus on the experience of uh, any woman who has 
willingly undergone natural childbirth, where the pain, I mean, I'm told is more excruciating than anything that any man could bear. Uh, I don't know how anyone would know that, but I'm willing... I mean, having, having been in the room when both my children were born, I'm willing to say, yeah, that's a, I would have been screaming for the epidural. Uh, but of course, there it's associated with a joyful event, and it's not an evil, and uh, I mean, it's, it's got evil aspects, but it's not itself an evil. So uh, the point here is that context counts in determining whether pain is an evil or not. And what makes the pain of torture evil is a particular kind of context. Now, here I'm going to draw on the authority of the Stoic writer Seneca um, in one of his letters, who I think had extremely perceptive things to say about torture and the evils of torture. Uh, Seneca says that even the Stoic sage who prides himself on being completely indifferent to what the world can inflict on him, quails, his heart breaks, his courage breaks, when he's confronted with the spectacle of seeing the instruments of torture displayed in front of him. Okay. And one of the things that's important about what Seneca says is that it is uh, um, the spectacle itself, and he says the spectacle overcomes those who would have patiently withstood the suffering. Now, I don't know if that means that the spectacle is worse than the suffering, but certainly that the spectacle is one of the things that's constitutive of the evil. Now, it's, the spectacle involves a kind of terror. What is a terror of? Uh, here's what Seneca says. That which shakes us most is the dread which hangs over us from another's power over us. So it's knowing that you are in the power of somebody, knowing that you are at the mercy of someone who is completely merciless. Now, I want to pick up on that element of mastery, of being somebody else in somebody else's power, and offer a definition of torture. This is going to be quite different from the legal definition. I'll come back to that in a moment, but it's meant to capture just these aspects of torture. So here it is. A torture is the display of unlimited power over absolute helplessness accomplished through the infliction of suffering on the victim that the victim is meant to perceive as the display of the torturer's limitless power and the victim's absolute helplessness. Now, that's a little complicated, and let me try to pick it apart. The, the main ideas here are, first of all, that torture involves a display of somebody's mastery, of the, the torturer's mastery over the victim. Um, and what it's the display of is that power relation. I'm absolutely helpless. You have limitless power over me, limitless power. You can do anything to me that you want. Uh, and that that mastery, that radical inequality, that display is accomplished through the infliction of pain. Um, that's the medium through which the unlimited power is displayed. Hey, now, the legal definition uh, is, at its core, torture as the intentional infliction of severe mental or physical pain or suffering on someone. And there are other aspects to it that, uh, in most legal definitions, by government agents, um, 
not for purposes of punishment or law enforcement, but the, the core is the intentional infliction of severe mental or physical pain or suffering. Now, I don't want to say that that definition is wrong, but I think it leaves something out, and the reason that I'm offering a substitute definition uh, is that the part that it leaves out is this element of the, the elements of mastery and the spectacle of mastery that's driven home to set the context for the suffering that the torture victim undergoes. Uh, so it's a certain relationship of uh, absolute inequality that's at the center of uh, the context that makes the pains of torture evil. Now the aim of torture is to break the victim. It is meant as an all-out assault on the victim's soul. And now here, the two aspects of human dignity that I singled out earlier, um, the integrity of the personality and equal human status are linked. Um, to understand the nature of the violation, we understand that the torturer is trying to break the soul of the victim, to break the mind of the victim, to break the will of the victim, to break the spirit of the victim. Uh, I mean, the way that uh, Elaine Scarry in her book on the body in pain describes the pains of torture is that that's an intensely privatizing experience because as anybody knows who's experienced really bad pain, uh, it's, so, it's too distracting. It makes it impossible for you to think about anything else. It brings you back into yourself. It doesn't even have to be extreme pain. Anybody who desperately has to go to the bathroom in the middle of a lecture, where it's too embarrassing to get up and stalk out, uh, knows how you can't really think about anything else. Uh, so that's the sense of an assault on the victim, the powers of the victim's personality. Um, and it's done precisely in order to turn the victim into someone who's utterly subservient to somebody else. Um, Jean Améry was a... Um, a prisoner of the Gestapo who wrote a famous essay about the torture that he underwent and he says when it has happened and the torturer has expanded into the body of his fellow man and extinguished what was his spirit he himself can then smoke a cigarette or sit down to breakfast now I've been focusing on physical pain and physical torture. It seems to me that the same phenomena uh, go on with mental torture. Now, there's a, a history of mental torture that I want to mention. I, the modern research by intelligence agencies into mental torture is often traced back to a series of experiments uh, done by a an American psychologist named Martin Seligman um, on, on dogs. Uh, published in a paper called Learned Helplessness. And what Seligman's experiments consisted of was administering electrical shocks to dogs, uh, but not in the usual way of training that they are, make the dog aversive to one thing, make the dog want something else, but they're completely random and there's no behavior of the dog that can do anything to make the shock stop. And what Seligman discovered was that after a while the dogs no longer even made an attempt to get away from the source of the electrical shock. That was the learned helplessness. Um, now, human researchers, picking up on Seligman's ideas, uh, discovered uh, several things. One was that very small disorientations, hooding somebody, 
depriving them of sleep, or making their sleep come at uneven, unpredictable hours. This is what uh, the, um, the CIA referred to as the frequent flyer program of waking somebody up every couple of uh, every hour and then every two hours, but really at kind of random intervals, moving them to a different cell. Uh, not letting the victim know what time it is. Noise, flashing lights, manipulations of temperature, too hot, too cold, that just um, the accumulation of those small disorienting experiences can reduce somebody to the status of Seligman's dogs, to a state of learned helplessness. Add on other techniques of so-called torture light, slapping, and not punching or beating, the kind of thing that's torture heavy, but uh, um, an insult slap, um, an insult grab, plus other forms of humiliation, forced nudity, forced grooming. Um, prisoners at Guantanamo had their beards shaved. Uh, sexual taunting, sexual humiliations, that all of these can completely break the personality and reduce the victim to a kind of infantile submissiveness. So um, kind of Stockholm Syndrome in a way in which now they just want to please. Okay. This is more helplessness. So um, here's a, a Guantanamo example. This is from an interrogator's log. Um, in uh, the 50-day interrogation of a man named uh, Mohammed Al-Khatani, um, told detainee that a dog is held in higher esteem because dogs know right from wrong. Began teaching the detainee lessons such as stay, come, and bark to elevate his social status up to that of a dog. Detainee became very agitated. Uh, that was from the that was from the uh, uh, the log. Now. What you see here is exactly the same pattern of complete, I mean, I think the dog training example is a perfect illustration. I'm the master. I'm above you. It's through these aversive techniques that I will reduce your will to being a suburb of my own will. Now, I'm going to give one other example uh, from uh, a Guantanamo technique. This was uh, from an army in investigation. A detainee was given the following threat, um, and I'm quoting from the official report. He will disappear and never be heard from again. His very existence will become erased. His electronic files will be deleted from the computer. His paper files will be packed up and filed away, and his existence will be forgotten by all. No one will know what happened to him, and eventually, no one will care. Now, I'm sure that that threat was written with lawyers in mind. Um, under U.S. law, the only, the only kinds of threats that count as mental torture are threats of death or of severe pain to yourself or to somebody else. So this one is very carefully contrived so that the threat, which is bureaucratic oblivion, can't count under U.S. law as a form of mental torture. Um, nevertheless, it clearly is mental torture, and circling back to the place that I began, it's mental torture of exactly the same kind that the German court was talking about with life without parole. Um, it is that the torture has the power, without inflicting civil pain, simply to erase my existence. Um, now, I want to 
I want to make a couple of comment, a couple more comments, and I'll stop. Milder in some sense, but in some sense more severe than life without parole is long-term solitary confinement, isolation. And in fact, it's uh, isolation is one of the techniques that has been used by interrogators uh, in order to break detainees. And in fact, the U.S. government entered a pleading in court saying we can't give lawyers to detainees because if they have lawyers, they'll have human contact with somebody other than the interrogator. Um, isolation is what we're using in order to produce the kind of servility that will lead this person to give us useful information. So the government is saying, we have to do this. Now, in fact, in the United States, there are 25,000 prisoners in long-term solitary confinement. Uh, the problem with long-term solitary confinement, besides the obvious one, is that it destroys the personality. Uh, uh, a psychologist explains that uh, who we are and how we function in the world around us is nested in our relation to other people so that over a long-term long isolation, uh, one's sense of self is undermined. Uh, it undermines your ability to regulate your own emotions. The appropriateness of your feelings and your thoughts is impossible to index because you're lacking the feedback from other people that will tell you whether what you're feeling right now is normal or abnormal. Um, so it becomes a struggle to maintain sanity. And this, once again, is something that seems to me the same family uh, as life without parole, as the uh, various forms of torture light and disorientation that are all meant to inflict severe mental suffering on somebody in order to display the torturer's mastery. And it seems to me that this is clearly a violation of human dignity understood in the twofold way that I've been proposing. Uh, the maintaining of equal status of all people and the integrity of the individual's personality. And I think that's, that's what I'll stop here. Great, thank you. And thanks for, uh, for sticking to time as well. So, Jeremy, do you want to take us on? Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. It's, um, it's a very, very great honor to be on the platform with these people and um, on a serious subject. It might seem, from, from some points of view, talking about dignity as the basis of the objection to torture doesn't quite get at what's involved. David mentioned this at the beginning of his comments. You know, to say of torture that it's disrespectful, to say of torture that it doesn't give people the respect that they're fundamentally entitled to seems to be such an understatement. And um, it does seem intuitively we would want to concentrate directly on elements of cruelty, cruelty that... Uh, uh, would be explained as wrong, not in terms of the dignity of the human being, but in, as David has suggested, in the same way that cruelty to animals would be, would be explained. So um, I think, like him, the part of our work here today is to explain why nevertheless the concept of dignity is an idea that has great power and does a lot of work in uh, making the case for the kind of ferocious prohibitions on torture that we find in the legal systems of the world and in international uh, humanitarian law and international human rights law. Dignity is a, a, an interesting concept because when it's used affirmatively, when we talk about respecting human dignity, we connote a picture of the nobility of the human being. 
the full exercise of her faculties of reason and moral agency and love and um, figuring things out for herself, we, we convey a very elevated view of the human being, sometimes associated with image of God and religious conceptions, sometimes associated, as David mentioned, with some sort of vice-regency for God in the world. It is a very high, elevated view. When dignity is used to condemn certain practices, often we're talking about a precipitous and momentous fall down into the depths of degradation and the depths of misery. And I think it is no tribute to our species that we have had to develop this one concept that can do both sorts of work, that affirmatively it refers to a high elevation of the nobility of the human being, uh, negatively in the prohibitions upon uh, assaults on dignity. It refers to some of the worst things that humans can suffer, some of the worst uh, degradations that their treatment can be associated with, some of the worst things that people can do to one another. In between, we have a funny little concept which talks about the dignified and the undignified. And although there is certainly something undignified about being tortured, and although, as David has just mentioned, the nakedness is associated with that, the helplessness is associated with that, the various forms of humiliation are associated with that, the notion of the undignified is so far above on this great moral cliff, uh, above the notion of a direct assault on human dignity, which goes much deeper into the awful evils that humans can inflict on one another. So I wanted to mention that up front, just to sort of pay tribute to the fact that if we just think about dignity in the, in the sense of making sure we are according humans all the respect that their high calling invites, we're not going to be able to capture the other end of it, which is the, the refraining from these massive assaults on human dignity. Whether we like it or not, most of the provisions in human rights codes and in constitutions uh, which limit the abusive, coercive, painful and penal treatment that people can be subject to, most of those are associated either explicitly or implicitly with ideas of dignity. So, for example, the provision of the United States Constitution, the Eighth Amendment, which prohibits um, cruel and unusual punishment, the courts have long held that this is a dignitarian proposition. They held this when they made uh, a denationalization a prohibited form of punishment. They held it on both occasions when they held that capital punishment was per se cruel and unusual, and when they readmitted capital punishment, they nevertheless re-echoed the notion that the Eighth Amendment was a dignitarian, dignitarian idea. The European Court of Human Rights has said very similar things about Article 3, the prohibition on torture and inhuman and degrading treatment. I'm going to say much more about that um, a little bit later on, that even though the term dignity is not used in the text of the article, uh, these are nevertheless provisions that are designed to combat the worst kinds of assault on, on human dignity. Um, and in um, uh, the legal system of Israel, the basic law is a law of dignity and liberty, and in the cases that have dealt with torture, the 1999 case on shaking and other torture-like techniques that were being used by the Israeli security forces, dignity is peppered all over the judgment, which holds that uh, things like uh, shaking, slapping, and stress positions 
uh, are prohibited methods, they harm the suspect's body, they violate his dignity. Stress positions are degrading and they infringe upon an individual's human dignity. The term is used over and over again. So it's there in the law. It's evidently a resource that the law, I believe, has largely created for itself. I'm not a great believer in the, the idea that dignity is primarily a moral or a philosophical idea. I think it may well be an idea that is doing legal work from start to finish. And I argued this in my uh, recent book, Dignity, Rank and Rights, which was the Tanner Lectures I gave in Berkeley in uh, 2009. Um, I do think we need to understand dignity, just the work that it does do in and around law as a legal principle, a distinctively legal value. The, of course, it is cited in other areas of human thought as well, and I don't want to disparage those. I don't want to disparage the great work that has been done in philosophy by Henry, um, by David Sussman in some recent work, by uh, Charles and Gregory Freed in their little book, Because It Is Wrong, in their account of uh, the wrongness of torture. And I do think there are important things in the Kantian conception of human dignity which have played a great role in German law and more broadly in the, in the, um, in the development of the modern concept of human dignity. But there are parts of Kant's conception that don't have a whole lot to do with the conceptions of dignity that we have to talk about. Kant suggests, as you know, in the groundwork to the metaphysics of morals, that dignity is a term that we use to contrast with things that have a price. Everything has a price, every value has either a price or a dignity. If it has a price, it is substitutable, fungible for something else of similar price. If it has a dignity, it is irreplaceable, it is value beyond price. Now regarding humans, by virtue of their moral autonomy, as valuable beyond price is tremendously important, but it's not going to give us a direct route to the, uh, the wrongness of torture or anything else. Although I do believe that Kantian notions of treating people as ends in themselves and not merely as means, and the Kantian idea of what moral autonomy is, which is this remarkable and, on his view, momentous capacity to oppose moral agency to the power of one's inclinations and to the power of one's feelings. I think those matters are indirectly relevant to the case about torture because one of the things that the torturer does is to say implicitly to the person in front of him, ah, so you think you are a person with free will and with a moral ability to choose what to do with this remarkable contra-inclination power that Kant regarded as so momentous in you and in everybody. I'm going to raise your inclinations to the highest screaming pitch and we'll just see what becomes of your will and see what becomes of your agency. So it is certainly true that in that deeper sense of a moral autonomy, torture is a direct assault and it is an attempt to turn the body and turn the inclinations uh, of the person against that person's will and against that person's agency to shatter their agency and sacrifice it on the altar of their pain. Um, that Kantian idea, I do think, is, is uh, very important and very deep. And there are discussions in Kant's works, not in the groundwork, but elsewhere in the metaphysics of morals, oddly, 
in the doctrine of virtue part of the metaphysics of morals rather than the doctrine of right about certain forms of punishment and maltreatment of criminals being absolutely prohibited in virtue of human dignity. So I don't want to push the, the, uh, the, the, the moral philosophy altogether aside. Over the last 10 years, like many of us, I have become wary of moral philosophers' ability to contribute to the tortured debate. I know of only three or four moral philosophers who are prepared to countenance an absolute prohibition on torture. One of them is sitting beside me. Uh, David <coughs> Wiggins is another. But uh, ever since I started to write on this, my philosopher friends regarded the notion of absolute prohibitions as absurd, as almost inevitably discredited by their implication with religion, and so on. So um, by and large, uh, moral philosophers have not distinguished themselves in work that needed to be done over the, last, over the last 10 years. Ask a moral philosopher about torture, and normally the first thing they will say is, well, first thing to say is it's not absolutely prohibited. Yeah? The first thing to say is that we can imagine a ticking bomb situation in which it's, it's required, and they'll talk about threshold deontology and things like that. And they say, we have to get that straight first of all. Maybe there are pragmatic reasons for having a legal prohibition, blah, 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 but the most important thing to know is it's not absolutely prohibited. That's been the legacy of most moral philosophers on this matter. There are non-legal accounts of dignity in religious traditions. David Luban mentioned the image of God idea and the notion that torture might, in some sense, assault and desecrate the divine significance of the human person. This is not just a, a Roman Catholic idea. One of the most powerful anti-torture documents is the Evangelicals Against Torture manifesto produced by David Gushy and other national evangelicals in the United States and published, you can access it on the, on the website for the Evangelicals Against Torture. Very, very powerful, but very specifically religious case against this form of assault on the divine status of the human person. As I said, I want to stick closer to law and jurisprudence and to explore dignity as a specifically legal idea. And I wanted to pursue four themes. One is to think of dignity not necessarily so much as a foundation of human rights or even as a foundation of this particular right, the right not to be tortured, but to think of dignity as a sort of status that people have and that law recognizes, a status that comprises demanding rights and exacting responsibilities. A status like, I don't know, the status, if you think of differential hierarchical statuses, the status of being a judge has certain rights and responsibilities associated with it. The status of being the queen, or the status of being a parliamentarian, the status of being a married person, and there are low statuses too, like bankruptcy and and, and um, uh, alienage and infancy and so on. But law sometimes identifies statuses and bundles together, clusters <coughs> together certain rights and responsibilities. We now, I think, recognize in modern legal systems a very high status of ordinary human standing and associate with it some, as I said, uh, demanding rights, human rights, 
and quite exacting responsibilities as well. It comes close to the notion of the status of a citizen, but it's not just a citizen idea, it's the status of any person. Any person is to be treated as a being of high nobility and of having this very high array of rights uh, and uh, responsibilities. And from that point of view, the status of human dignity is high, it is equal, as David said, and that um, uh, its relation to torture is that the rule against torture is a fortiori, one of the things that is comprised in the high status of the dignity of the human person. Makes dignity do rather different work than being simply a um, foundational idea, although I don't think it's incompatible with it doing some foundational work as well. And I do think David is right that there are some formal elements of that dignity status, namely the radical contrived inequality of the mastery and the helpless person in front of the torture, which it is the purpose of torture to create and um, enact. It's also the case that torture was for a long time in the in times past a form of treatment reserved for low status persons. A form of treatment reserved for low status persons. Slaves could not give evidence in an Athenian court except under torture. And by insisting now that nobody is to be tortured, whatever the circumstances, we are generalizing high status treatment and we are working within the tradition that James Whitman, in the book Harsh Punishment that David referred to, um, uh, has described as the, the generalization, the upwards generalization of high status treatment to try to apply it to all persons and not just high status persons. Very, very interesting book, Harsh, harsh Punishment, Harsh Justice? I think it's Harsh Justice. Harsh Justice by, David, by James Whitman. Dignity, secondly, is important because it's a matter of status that, unlike some statuses, is inalienable and non-forfeitable. And talking about dignity in the context of torture is very important to make that point. People will often say, well, these are not regular human beings, these are terrorists. Right? This is not a good person, this is a bad person. This is a person who has already declared war on mankind, who would be ready, uh, if he were let loose, to bomb and maim and kill. This is a person who may have forfeited whatever rights that they had. The idea of dignity in its modern legal usage conveys that that's not possible, that dignity is retained by all persons under all circumstances, no matter what they do. May I quote another Israeli case, this from the case on targeted killing from 2005, where uh, the Supreme Court of Israel was considering and possibly permitting targeted killing, like uh, uh, President <coughs> Obama's drone killing. Um, and one of the premises, they said, was terrorism poses an existential threat to the people in the state of Israel. And the second premise said uh, President Emeritus Barak, unlawful combatants, terrorists, are not outlaws. God created them as well in his image. They too have human dignity. Their status is to be respected by law and by customary international law. It didn't settle the issue, but it drew you up sharp that this was a serious matter. We were not, again, dogs. We're not just dealing with a rabid dog here. We're dealing with a person with human dignity who has chosen uh, appalling actions, but whose dignity is not, um, is not uh, lost by virtue 
of that. And it is, uh, again, I was very fascinated by David's suggestion that it's part of the strategy of torture sometimes to try to erase that, the sense of inalienable or non-forfeitable rights. So I think that element of the legal notion of dignity associated with modern human rights law and international uh, uh, humanitarian law is tremendously important. Thirdly, and now getting just a little bit more specific, I think we can learn a lot from some of the language that the law uses to express its dignitarian requirements. And here I want to focus particularly on Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which prohibits not just torture, but inhuman treatment or punishment and degrading treatment and punishment. Now, some of you will be familiar with the way in which the lawyers have parsed that. They've suggested that these might be three grades of ill treatment. Not all degrading treatment is inhuman. Not all inhuman treatment is torture. But looking at it in the other direction, it would normally be accepted that torture is characteristically inhuman treatment, even though not all inhuman treatment is torture. And torture is characteristically degrading treatment, although not all degrading treatment is torture on these accounts. And so concentrating on the degrading aspects of torture and concentrating on the inhuman aspects of torture and what those predicates mean can be quite helpful, I think, in our thinking about dignity on these matters. Degradation goes with dignity in the sense that dignity is a matter of the high rank accorded to people, whether they're high rank in a hierarchy so that Alec Guinness is being degraded on the bridge of the River Kwai by being required to work as though he were a common soldier, or high rank in the equal human dignity idea where a person is degraded by being treated as though there were several ranks of human beings and he belonged to one of the lower ones. Right? We now have high-ranking ideas of, uh, of, of human being, and torture characteristically aims to diminish and assault that high rank, either by inducing a regress into something like infancy, where a person is left lying naked in their own waste because they are not able or permitted to take care of their own bodily needs in the way that adult, grown-up human beings characteristically do, or when people are treated like animals there was an attempt to, to force them into just bestial recoil from pain, or the other more complicated and disturbing relations to pain that David Lubang talked about, or when people are treated just as things, although no torturer ever treats his victim just as a thing, he reminds his victim all the time, you are a human being and I am treating you as a thing. He doesn't just treat him as an animal or as an object. Or the enormously important sexual element associated with torture in almost every circumstance and almost every context. Torture involves uh, sexual degradation. Often it involves rape or threats of rape or things like rape. Often it involves sexual depravity, and we know it's one of the gateways through which quite demonic forms of depravity enter the world, no matter what the uh, high aspirations are of the philosophers who defend its use to defuse ticking bombs. So the, um, the notion of degradation, operating at the foot of this precipitous cliff that I talked about, sometimes conveys a sense of, of why, of why uh, dignity is important. I think the notion of inhumanity does as well, although the term inhuman in Article 3 is difficult to parse. It doesn't mean the same as inhumane, that is, treatment that is not particularly kind or benevolent. 
inhuman means what it says. It refers to something like either a form of treatment that no human ought to be able to inflict, a form of treatment that no human ought to be expected to suffer, or ought to be expected to be able to bear. I don't just mean that it's a general negative term of approval, treatment that shouldn't be inflicted. The idea is that somewhere in the interface between psychology and normativity, we say this is not a form of suffering that humans ought to be expected to put up with. And this is the last legal idea I want to expound. Some of the work that I've been doing recently, um, hesitantly and tentatively, has been devoted to the idea of whether we can think of there being such a thing as respectful coercion. Law we know is forceful. Law we know can be coercive. Law and legal systems use threats of penalties, and they impose penalties. And law and law law enforcement officials use force, evicting people from places, stopping people from going to places, putting an end to an assault, seizing goods, and so on. So law is forceful. But law in its modern conception, it seems to me, limits itself to certain kinds of force and certain kinds of penalties. And the notion is that law will not use just any means necessary to get its way. It will not use means, I talked a little bit about this in torture, terror, and trade-offs. It will not use means which are just simply brutal, calculated to smash or destroy the agency of those who are, who are, are subject to its coercion. <laughs> It will certainly threaten penalties that are unwelcome and penalties that may be difficult to put up with. But the idea of legal penalties in modern conceptions of law, this is the idea that I'm exploring, is that legal penalties, while unwelcome and coercive, must nevertheless be bearable. It must be possible to bear the term of imprisonment to which you're sentenced. Goodness me, even if you're sentenced to death, the sentence must be carried out in a way that you can in some sense, although it's very, very hard to put your thing, bear the form of execution, walk to your execution, uh, that there is a procedure that you can go through, that you don't have to break down and become something less than a human being in bearing this punishment. And that that is the limit to the coercion, that is the limit to the power of the threats that law can make. And torture aims specifically to go way beyond that. Torture aims specifically to go way up to the edge of the, or beyond the edge of the envelope of the bearable. Torture does take the any means necessary approach to coercion. And so I want to say there's something profoundly important about the law's antipathy to torture. Law works by and large in all of its operations, both at the top of the cliff and at the bottom of of its cliff by respecting human agency and by operating forms of coercion that nevertheless allow human agency to take its place. Law depends on people's self-application of most of its norms, including most of its punitive norms. Law does not seek to break the spirit or the will or the personality or the agency of those who are subject to its threats or an extremist to its penalties and to its force. Now, it is true, as Blackstone reminded us a couple of hundred years ago, that torture in the hands of the English has usually been an instrument of the state, not an instrument of the law. A very frequent instrument of the state, and not just the sort of grubby complicity associated with the present regime. But um, 
By insisting on these legal elements, we are insisting on a substantive, uh, the substantive importance of bringing state operations under legal, under legal control, bringing them under the control of the spirit of the law, which, as I say, in modern jurisprudence, is of something coercive, but not of something brutal. And I do think it's worthwhile working um, on that interface as well. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Um, we do have a couple of seats up the front, if you'd like to come down. Uh, so we'll move on to, to Henry. Thanks, David. When one condemns a certain practice, such as torture, one of the challenges is to specify the features of the practice sufficiently narrowly that the features invoked do not turn out also to characterize other somewhat similar practices that ought not to be condemned. If one fails to keep the characterization narrow enough, one will cast the net too widely and end up with an implausibly broad position. For example, quite often when I speak against torture as never being acceptable in any circumstances, someone will object by saying that they suppose I'm simply opposed to all tough interrogation, which means I would leave authorities facing terrible opponents with no means of forcing them to reveal anything that they do not want to reveal. This lack of effective means of interrogation, the objector would not accept. But the objection is mistaken. Tough interrogation need not be torture. And torture is far more than merely tough interrogation. But drawing the line between torture and tough interrogation is not easy. In particular, I have no doubt that torture violates human dignity, but I wonder whether some tough interrogation that is not torture also violates human dignity, while nevertheless being permissible in some extreme circumstances. If this is correct, it complicates the role of the appeal to human dignity in arguments against torture. At least, these are the questions I want to raise in order to get your views. Are there some forms of interrogation that, one, are not torture, two, are, at least in extreme cases, morally permissible, but three, are nevertheless disrespectful of human dignity? She uses my example the form of interrogation advocated by Matthew Alexander, a pseudonym, in his 2008 book, How to Break a Terrorist, the U.S. interrogators who used brains, not brutality, to take down the deadliest man in Iraq. Matthew Alexander is the pseudonym for a U.S. Air Force interrogator who was instrumental in locating the rural safe house in which Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, was hiding so that he could be killed by an airstrike on 7 June 2006. The choice of verb in the title of his account, How to Break a Terrorist, is, for reasons that Jeremy just alluded to, unfortunate, because for Alexander it does not mean what break means in the CIA torture paradigm that David also talked about. There's no assault on the personality structure of the person being interrogated. Quoting Alexander, 
break is the jargon we use to signify getting a prisoner to open up a little, like cracking an egg, end quote. Alexander has only contempt for the American torturers with whom he had to serve in Iraq, but mostly because of their incompetence. Quoting Alexander again, who's quoting one of his colleagues, Right, Lenny says, tear down his self-respect. That should level the playing field. End of quote from the other person. Alexander goes on, I can't believe I'm hearing this. If you tried to crush an American colonel's sense of self with words alone, would it work? End quote. In any case, Alexander gives his prisoners the opposite treatment. Quote, still, I've given him hope. And hope is the most powerful weapon, end quote. So, is Alexander interrogating with kindness? Far from it. The hope he gives is false hope. He pretends and tricks and lies to his prisoners, treating them in ways that in almost any other circumstances would be clearly immoral. Quote, the best interrogators are outstanding actors. Once they hit that booth, their personalities are transformed. They allow a doppelganger to emerge. What doppelganger is most likely to elicit information from a detainee changes from prisoner to prisoner. Sometimes I must have a wife or children so I can swap stories with the prisoner, though I have neither." End quote. The interrogation that Alexander practices does not make a pretty picture. He coercively manipulates his prisoners. They are not treated as ends. They are used instrumentally to obtain information. Some people will certainly feel that it's morally wrong ever to treat people like this. It does not obviously respect their dignity as human beings. The centerpiece of Alexander's book is his account of how he interrogated the man who in the end gave him the location of Al-Zarqawi's safe house. After a number of days of free cigarettes and general chat, the man confided in Alexander that he was very unhappy with his wife and began to uh, complain about his wife. Alexander responded, in effect, you think your wife is difficult. <laughs> Let me tell you about my wife. Of course, Alexander has no wife, but then for days they traded stories about what a pain their uh, respective wives were. And after some more days of this, the prisoner mentioned to Alexander that he actually was very much in love with a mistress and that the one thing he wanted most was to marry his mistress, but he couldn't because divorce was contrary to Islam as he understood Islam. This was the opening that Alexander had been waiting for. He said to the prisoner, you know, the Americans run the country now. I'm sure I can find a judge who would rule that your, your initial marriage was not valid and that you're really not married, and then you'll be free to marry your mistress. And the prisoner admitted that that would have fulfilled his greatest dream. And Alexander, of course, said, 
but I need something from you. I need to know the location of Zarqawi's safe house. And after a few days, the prisoner gave it to him. Alexander gave the location to the Air Force, and they blew the house to bits, killed Zarqawi. And Alexander did nothing ever to help his prisoner. Alexander's technique is unrelenting until he obtains the information he wants. But it's not, I think, torture. It is not mercilessly cruel and destructive. No severe pain or suffering, physical or mental, is inflicted on prisoners. The struggle is a battle of wits. The prisoner's values and beliefs are not respected. He is, if he can be, tricked into betraying them. He's treated as an enemy and outwitted if possible. But the soundness of neither his mind nor his body is undermined. He is not shamed and humiliated like the men at Guantanamo who were forced sometimes to wear women's underwear and other times made to obey dog commands like stay and bark in order in both cases to mock their values and undermine their dignity. Alexander's prisoner will surely ultimately regret that his interrogator outsmarted him and obtained the wanted information, but his regret will be possible because his mind will have remained sound, unlike the minds of some of those assaulted by the CIA torture method. His personality structure was not undermined. He was offered a fraudulent deal that he could have refused to take quoting Alexander, we don't have to become our enemies to defeat them, end quote. David Luban's insightful definition of torture is, quote, the display of unlimited power over absolute helplessness accomplished through the infliction of severe suffering on the victim that the victim is meant to perceive as the display of the torturer's limitless power and the victim's absolute helplessness." End quote. Alexander's subject is in a weak position. He has been captured by the military forces of his enemy and imprisoned. But he is not utterly helpless, like the nameless prisoners in CIA's black sites. And Alexander has considerable power over the prisoner before him, but he is not all-powerful because he chooses to limit his own power. He will not reduce his prisoner to a weeping infant begging for mercy like the inmates at Guantanamo. Alexander offers his prisoner a deal, a rotten deal, a deal he should and could refuse, but his subject chooses to gamble that he can trust Alexander. He can't. Does Alexander's technique respect the dignity of his subject? The short answer is that I do not know, and I'm eager to see what Jeremy and David, who've thought more about dignity than I have, and the rest of you, think. But here are some brief, relatively random thoughts. Alexander's technique consists, I would say, primarily of trickery. Such trickery is a standard element of warfare. 
When the Allies decided to land at Normandy, they sent their bombers to hit Calais. This was a trick that invited the German forces defending the French coasts to send more of their forces to Calais, ideally pulling some of them out of Normandy. Earlier, the Allies had gone to enormous lengths thanks, to create the impression that the southern front would be opened in Greece, not Sicily. This is one way one fights wars. But in one respect, Alexander's trick is worse. It relies on a betrayal of trust. If German commanders moved troops to Calais, it was not because they trusted the Allies not to deceive them. They simply thought they had evidence from which they could reliably infer a conclusion. You don't waste bombs on a place you're not going to attack, so you must be planning to attack the place you were bombing. The Allies hoped the defenders would make this inference, but they did nothing to invite or create trust in themselves, to invite the inference or, or create trust in themselves. Alexander, on the other hand, spends weeks building up his subject's trust, carefully constructing an elaborate lie. And even during war, one kind of trickery is prohibited, perfidy. Is Alexander perfidious? Perfidy consists of, according to the first Geneva Protocol of 1977, quote, acts inviting the confidence of an adversary to lead him to believe that he is entitled to, or is obliged to accord, protection under the rules of international law applicable in armed conflict with intent to betray that confidence, end quote. It's Article 37. Examples of perfidy given in Article 37 include, quote, A, the feigning of an intent to negotiate under a flag of truce or of a surrender, B, the feigning of an incapacitation by wounds or sickness, C, the feigning of civilian non-combatant status, end quote. Someone who does not care about civilians or the wounded will not be tricked into coming forward and making herself vulnerable only someone who's committed to respecting civilians or assisting the wounded will expose herself to danger, and thus only she will be tricked into her own death. She will be tricked because, and only because, she is committed to abiding by the rules, by the, by the limits on war. Does Alexander commit perfidy? He certainly practices intention sorry, deception with the intention of betrayal. He pretends that his non-existent wife makes him so miserable that he understands the desire to marry the mistress because he wants his target to give him something for the help for the mistress that he has no intention of providing. But Alexander is not exploiting commitment to the law's limiting conflict or commitment to any other principle is exploiting misery. Alexander's deception may be a dirty trick, but it's not perfidy. Perfidy does not violate personal trust. It violates commitment to principle. 
and the exploitation of self-interest, even the interest in escaping misery and attaining happiness, and even through the violation of trust, does not seem to me analogous to the exploitation of concern for others or commitment to law. But is it respectful of human dignity? It certainly shows no respect for the ends being pursued by the subject of the interrogation, but neither does war or law enforcement. In war, one seeks to impose one's will on another, to see that their ends are not served, and that one's own conflicting ends are served. But many warriors respect their adversaries. In fact, it's quite common to find fighters who have more respect for their adversaries than for the politicians on either side who have made them into adversaries. And they still try to outwit and sometimes to kill each other. Alexander does not discuss respect or dignity. I doubt that, in fact, he sees himself as very interested in them. But could he have respected the man he has betrayed? <clears throat> I think so. Compare two of the characters in Tim O'Brien's novel about the war in Vietnam, the things they carried. An American has just killed his first member of the Viet Cong. One of these comrades is disrespectfully jubilant. Oh man, you fucking trashed the fucker. You scrambled his sorry self. Look at that. You did. You laid him out like shredded fucking wheat. Rice Krispies, you know. On the dead test, this particular individual gets A+. But the man who killed the Viet Cong reflects very differently. He thinks he lay face up in the center of the trail, a slim, dead, almost dainty young man. He had bony legs, a narrow waist, long shapely fingers. His chest was sunken and poorly muscled, a scholar maybe. His wrists were the wrists of a child. He'd been born maybe in 1946. He would have been taught that to defend the land was a man's highest duty and highest privilege. He had accepted this, it was never open to question. Secretly, though, it also frightened him. He was not a fighter. His health was poor, his body small and frail. He liked books. He wanted someday to be a teacher of mathematics. At night, lying on his mat, he could not picture himself doing the brave things his father had done. He hoped in his heart he would never be tested. He hoped the Americans would go away. Soon, he hoped. Tim O'Brien's character sees the man he killed as a fellow human being, one who loved mathematics and feared fighting. Alexander is so well able to trick his subject precisely because he understands him, too, as a fellow human being with an interior consciousness, one who's fed up with his wife and longs for his mistress. In an odd way, 
It is Alexander's capacity for empathy that makes him so good at the betrayal he practices. O'Brien's character must fight. Alexander must interrogate. Each seeks to thwart the purposes of his adversary, but neither, it seems to me, needs to deny his adversary's fundamental humanity. Is this enough? Enough to acknowledge human dignity? Enough to be permissible in the circumstances? Thank you. Um, well, we've been very privileged, I think, to have three really fascinating and illuminating and insightful reflections on the relationship between dignity and torture. And we've now got about 40 minutes uh, that we can take for this.